And those banjos must mean it's time for another episode of the Antietam and Beyond podcast. I'm Tom McMillan, along with my co-host, John Banks, and we are really excited, folks. This is our third episode, and the reaction has been tremendous. The second episode got it to 10 countries. John and I just like thought of this on the phone about three weeks ago, so we're, totally we're amazed it's come off this well, so uh, we're really excited. And tonight, uh, our special guest is uh, is noted Antietam historian and uh, author, Alex Racino. Alex has done five books on Antietam and the uh, and the and the uh, Maryland campaign, and we're going to really dig into two of his books. They would look at look at two sides of Special Orders One Ninety One. But before we get to Alex, and he he's uh, he's already connected with us. John has been doing some Civil War traveling recently and has a little update for us. Oh my gosh! Thank you so much, Tom. I I love to eat. I don't know about you, but I love eating. And and on my Civil War travels have some favorite restaurants, including including the semi-official restaurant of the Antietam and Beyond podcasts. You can read the complete list on my blog, the top 10 on my blog, John Banks's Civil War blog. But quickly here, I'm going to give you my top, I'll give you my top five. Walker's Diner in Farmville, Tom, is so fabulous. And it's near the site of Robert E. Lee's last victory, Cumberland Church Battlefield. And I love it for its fast breakfast, outdoor dining, great coffee. I'm putting that at number five. Uh, at number four, I'm going with the Sweet Shop Bakery in one of your favorite places and mine, Shepherdstown, West Absolutely. Virginia. Absolutely. Coffee, cheap oatmeal raisin cookies. And of course, it's near the Shepherdstown and Antietam battlefields. Number two, two or three, I think. We'll give this two. Bonnie's at the Redbird Restaurant in Keatesville, Maryland. I once had breakfast there with a CIA case agent. True story. I told that on episode one of our podcast. And I love this place, not only for the breakfast, but for the fabulous conversations. Unbelievable place. I love it. Great pie there, too. They need to name a pie after either you or me, Tom. And then I'm giving, we got a co-number one here. I couldn't break the tie. It was impossible. 1A, the press room in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. It's a former newspaper office, right, Tom? Yes, it is. That's why we love it. And as former newspaper people, we love it just for that fact. Great Italian fare, fabulous wine. It is, I'm declaring it, Tom, the semi-official restaurant of the Antietam and Beyond podcast. They'll be so excited the next time I'm there. It's amazing. And number one, one or one, I don't know. I was in Vicksburg, Mississippi last weekend. I had dinner with my psychotic connection, Sid Champion V of Champion Hill Battlefield Renown. And I promised him when I wrote my uh, a chapter in my book about Sid, and my book is A Civil War Road Trip of a Lifetime, I said, the next time I'm in Vicksburg, I'm going to buy him a steak dinner at the Beechwood. It's one of his favorite places. And last Saturday night, we dined at the Beechwood. And um, I can't tell you how tremendous that steak was, Tom. So, so good. Plus, the sweet uh, potato, baked potato that I had, was supremely excellent. 
So if you're ever in Vicksburg, Mississippi, hit the Beechwood. It's tremendous. See, folks, you don't just get history here. You don't just get Antietam history. You get you get restaurant recommendations and everything. We are we are a full service podcast, but we'll get back to our main topic now. We we are really excited to have uh Alex Racino with us, noted author. I've heard Alex speak twice at the Antietam Institute uh, conferences. And Alex, I, I noted the last time you were there, it wasn't a long, that long ago. I'm on the board. I get to read the reviews and uh, rave reviews from the uh, from the audience for your performance there. And uh, it's it's a tough crowd. Uh, Alex is the author of four books on the Maryland campaign, co-author of a fifth. Uh, the first two were historic novels. The, late, the latest ones have been really deeply researched books on history. We're going to get into two of them tonight, uh, both on different sides of uh, Lee's Special Orders 191. Uh, the Tale Untwisted, which uh, Alex co-wrote with Gene Thorpe, The Tale Untwisted, General George B. McClellan, The Maryland Campaign, and the Discovery of Lee's Lost Orders, and then one that Alex uh, authored singularly, Calamity at Frederick, Robert E. Lee, Special Orders Number 191, and Confederate Misfortune on the Road to Antietam. Alex, welcome. Hey, thanks very much for having me, gentlemen. I really appreciate it. I can't believe you left Pickett's Buffet off that list, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you can't count them all, right? <laughs> I've never been there. I need to go now. <laughs> if they're if they're closed, they're, uh, it's closed now, so they're off the list. Closed, yeah, so, they're off the yeah, list, yeah. right? That's right. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, there, there are lots of, uh, lots of places tied for, for number six. But Alex, one thing with your background, your your PhD, which means you're twice as smart as John and I combined. Uh, you did some work at the American Holocaust Memorial Museum. Right. You wrote some award-winning books on World War II, and now part of five books on the Antietam campaign. What caused that shift? What brought you to Antietam to write about Antietam? Yeah, so it's actually a, a long transition. The, my book, uh, Hitler Strikes Poland, came out in 2003. And as soon as it came out, I left the field um, because I had had enough uh, working on genocide studies every day, day in and day out. And I worked at the Holocaust Museum's photo archive for four years. So not only reading about it, but seeing it uh, was a real visceral experience. And uh, I just had enough. I didn't want to do it anymore. So I kind of transitioned my career a bit, started a new career in business intelligence, which is what I do for my day job. But I always had a love for the American Civil War. And um, one of the reasons I actually that I moved to the D.C. area first and then stayed in the mid-Atlantic area afterward was because I wanted to be close to Civil War battlefields. Um, so I would always go to, you know, battlefields on the weekends and whenever I had time off, I'm, in, you know, tramping on Manassas. And then of course, Antietam's only an hour away from, uh, Northern Virginia. So, um, it really wasn't much of a transition for me in terms of interest. The one thing that I would say that kept me from writing on it earlier was because, uh, or was that I thought that everything had been done. I mean, you know, there are so many books that come out on a regular basis about the civil war, not necessarily about the Maryland campaign or about Antietam, but uh, although that's changed recently, there are a lot of stuff coming out on on uh, the Antietam and uh, the Antietam Institute has a lot to do with that. But, uh, you know, I thought that everything had been done. And that's actually one of the reasons why I went into writing, a, uh, tried a novel first, um, because I had never written a novel. So it was kind of a personal challenge for me. 
because anyone who's written history before knows that writing fiction is a completely different animal and it takes a completely different mindset. So I really set it out as a challenge for myself, but I do the research because I'm a, I'm an historian. As you noticed, I have a post hole digger as my grandfather used to call it. And um, so, uh, you know, I, 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 collected hundreds of pages of notes in order to be able to you know get really into these into the story and tell sort of details that people don't really uh don't really encounter very often so for example the robert e lee's um, relationship with his personal body servant um and with his camp you know with his camp staff um things like that and so i needed to really dig into sources for that and so i, I ended up collecting this massive body of work and I realized that, uh, well, I have enough work here for histories, too. So I would go back into writing history as well. And my book there, Maryland, which came out in 2021, November 2021, the last two chapters of that in particular are based explicitly on material I collected for Six Days in September, which was my first historical novel. And so, you know, it, it kind of was an easy transition back and forth. It also helped that in 2009, I met a woman from Sharpsburg and Mary, we got married in 2011 and uh, we moved to uh, Western uh, Maryland here. Uh, I live outside of Boonesboro. Uh, we moved here in uh, May of 2013. So that was great because then I could visit all the, you know, I could feel, visit the fields whenever I wanted to. And I'm only 50 minutes from Gettysburg too. So I can go up there whenever I want to as well. Um, so it's really a great place to be alex tell, story. Us, tell us about the tale untwisted <clears throat> which you co-authored with gene thorpe what, what's what's the book about tell us tell our listeners and tell us about the process of of co-authoring that book right so the tale untwisted is um about the it's really about the army of the potomac's uh advance from washington dc up to frederick and specifically focused on McClellan, George McClellan, what he knew, when he knew it, and where he was when he knew it, uh, in an effort to um, to sort of correct the history as it's been passed down over the years, because uh, over the years, you know, the history is that George McClellan dawdled and that he didn't uh, get underway fast enough. He marched his army six, uh, six miles a day uh, when he could have moved faster. It led to the resulted in the capture of Harper's Ferry by Stonewall Jackson. Um, and so, you know, there's a there's a lot of uh, information out there uh, that that is really false. And so. Uh, when we first started to get together, Gene and I first started to get together, it started out with um, me doing research for my follow-up to Six Days in September, which is called the, called the Guns of September. And I wanted to know, I need to get into that detail again, where was McClellan, when, what time, etc. Um, and so I got in touch with Gene Thorpe because he had done the maps for their, for uh, Six Days in September, and I knew that he was a wealth of information. So I figured, well, I'll give him a shot. And it turned out that he had hundreds of pages and notes of, from different sources concerning the Army of the Potomac's advance, um, but he didn't have the material to, or to, the time to write the material. And so um, as I was, as he was explaining this history to me, I realized that there was a story here that we really needed to tell. And there was all this material that he had available, but we didn't have, he didn't have any time to get it out. So I offered, I said, Gene, I have the time. You have the material. I have some additional material that I had been collecting, especially from the Confederate side that can validate some things that, you know, McClellan knew or to kind of add a little context to the picture. 
Um, and so we decided we would work on an article together that we were going to submit to the Civil War Monitor in 2017. Uh, we ended up writing a larger piece or a longer piece that uh, Ted Savis uh, agreed to publish as a digital only essay for Savis Beatty's uh, Civil War Spotlight series. And that came out in 2019. And then after we'd done a few presentations on the subject, we got questions about expanding it into a book. And so we agreed to do that. And the book was born. And really, in the long term, we hope to unravel uh, the twisted tale as it's been uh, styled by Stephen, Se uh, by Stephen Sears and um, by, uh, and the Lost Orders. Um, and so we want we had the evidence to show that McClellan performed a lot better in Maryland than most history said he did. And we thought it needed to get out there. So that's why we ended up doing it. And it appeared finally in print uh, just January of this year. Let me ask you what kind of reaction you've gotten to that. Because every time I volunteer at the team, as you know, and people do have, most visitors do have that impression that McClellan Donald and that he was very much to blame. And some of the guides there have been trying to change some of that story. But people get... Uh, they get upset when you tell them that that, that might, might be incorrect. I mean, you have, I the, the research on that book was incredible. When I read it, I just slapped myself in the forehead. I didn't know this. Uh, but what kind of reaction have you gotten by, by challenging this, this long-held belief about McClellan? So it's been uniformly positive. Uh, we even got a quote from, uh, or a statement back from James McPherson, you know, the, the, celebrated historian James McPherson about it and he said that if he was writing his Antietam book today that he would use our account um, which is really you know means something to us because he's a professional historian he's a Pulitzer Prize winner and uh, he's written you know on Antietam in the past so it's been really uniformly positive especially because as you know the guide community here in western Maryland um, they already know that George McClellan did better than um, than people uh, assume he did or that they think he did um and so you know the general public or the general response has been really has been really good too i've been we've actually been very surprised that we haven't gotten any pushback from it um, or on it i should say um but i think that the research speaks for itself i mean you cannot read that book and it, we source everything that we say you cannot read that book without saying but but or but but you know what about this and what about that we answer all those questions i think and so we were pretty thorough about it and late in the late in the process i wanted to add an essay on the historiography so that we understood where how we got to where we are now and that's how it ended up being the first chapter and when people read that they're like well this is obviously a character assassination that you know and when once you put it in that context it becomes pretty clear that the evidence just speaks for itself Alex, before we zoom in, mm -hmm. zoom in on the yeah. finding of the lost orders. Yeah, sure. I read Landscape Turn Red way back in the 1980s. Sure. Obviously, that influenced a lot of people and, and their thinking regarding George McClellan. Mm -hmm. Tell us about George McClellan and how you view his generalship during the Maryland campaign. And then I'd like to zoom in on the finding of the lost orders and what we can kind of take it from there. Uh, right. So, um, you know, McClellan begins the campaign in a very tenuous situation. Uh, he's only, I mean, Lincoln has half-heartedly put him back in position uh, as commander of the Army of the Potomac. Of course, it's kind of starts in phases where McClellan's given command over the uh, defenses of Washington, D.C. on the 2nd of September. And then uh, a few days later, uh, Lincoln tells him that he can take the army into the field. 
although he later denies it and says that Halleck gave the order, which is kind of disingenuous on Lincoln's part. But I think he wanted to stay away from George McClellan as much as possible because of the, uh, you know, the political issues related to him. Um, and so, you know, uh, he's in a really rough spot. So he needs to kind of redeem himself after especially the second Manassas campaign where the accusations were flying thick and fast that he had not uh, acted promptly or reinforced uh, John Pope as he should have. Um, whether or not that's true, I'd leave that to other historians to debate. But um, you know, uh, uh, there, there, he needed to redeem himself, and that's the that's the point. And so he uh, he goes to he goes to his task um, really in a kind of workman's like style. I find um, he gets out into the field, realizes he has practically no cavalry at the beginning of the campaign. Um, but has to reach out and try and touch the enemy as much as possible in order to find out where he is. And so he uses the cavalry to the best of his, its ability at its time at the time until it until more and more of it finally um, uh, accumulates because the cavalry was one of the last um, pieces of the army of the Potomac to come back from the peninsula and had to be shipped back by boat. So um, he goes about it in a really workman methodical style. I wouldn't say it was necessarily cautious. Um, what he does is he extends his left flank along the Potomac River, moves his center up to Rockville and holds those in really in position and then swings with his right flank around to protect the National Road and uh, Baltimore. Um, and then as he's receiving information about where where uh, Lee is and where his army is, and he's receiving this information, yes, he's getting a lot of information from Governor Curtin, from civilian informants, from his cavalry, from newspapers, from a variety of different sources, but uh, and it's giving him a lot of different information. But one thing it is doing is it's really placing Lee's army where it was, just outside of Frederick. So McClellan knows where it is. And he knows within 24 hours that it's left Frederick too. So once he finds out that that Lee has moved and has gone to the northwest, he um, he accelerates uh, Burnside's advance down the National Road and uh, takes him to t tells him to take Frederick, which Burnside does late in the day on the 12th of September, and uh, that sets up the you know the details if you want to go into that for uh, where how the special orders were found and where they were found, etc. Zoom into that. Take yeah, us okay. take us there to that day, because I get I get kind of lost on this story a little bit. No, no pun intended. Zoom us into when the orders are found, where they were found and who found them. Right. OK, so um, the orders are found around noon. Uh, we don't have an exact time, but around noon, you know, anywhere if I, I, I usually put that with uh, anywhere from 10 minutes before noon to 10 minutes after noon. So that 20 minute period, it's found around noon by a man named Corporal Barton Mitchell. And uh, he is uh, with the 27th Indiana. He's on a skirmish line that has been shaken out by General George Gordon, who is the commander of the division that is leading the 12th Corps' advance up what's called the Iamsville Road. Today, it's known as the Reichs Ford Road um, from the Monocacy River. And uh, so he shook out, the Gordon shook out the, the skirmishers because of, of the fighting that's going on at Braddock, well, what's called Braddock Heights today, but it was called Hagen's Gap back then on the Catoctin Mountains, about four, four or five miles west of Frederick. 
so it's a noisy fight there's a lot of uh both musket and um and cannon fire so the suspicion was well maybe there are still rebel troops around um we should be careful so they move out in a skirmish line 27th indiana has uh two platoons in a skirmish line one on the left of the Ionsville road one on the right barton mitchell's on the left with his uh, sergeant john bloss um, and then behind them, they have a company strength skirmish line. And then behind that is the rest of the regiment, which is also in battle line. And so um, as they move up, um, they find the, the uh, they stop finally as they reach a point, I think, um, and there's a good case that can be made for this at the intersection of Iamsville Road, uh, South Franklin Street and East South Street. And they stop at this place because when as they look ahead there you can't go any farther you can see frederick 0.47 miles ahead you can see the buildings you can see off to the right that there's a uh, about 1200 feet away there's a column of infantry on the ninth corps moving down the national road into the town on the left you can't see the uh, second corps moving into town but bands are blaring regimental bands are blaring so it's almost certain they could hear that column um and and sergeant bloss mentions it in his uh in a couple of his accounts of the event that uh they understood that there were columns converging on the town and that they couldn't go any farther so they stop there they rest on the ground and all of a sudden barton mitchell sees uh what looks like a packet lying in the grass and he goes reaches out and picks it up it's in tall grass there's kind of some shrubs in the area and a tree uh under a locust tree and uh he opens up the the papers and it's two pages there's no envelope there are two pages and inside are two cigars and they fall out and uh, he reads them and uh, John Bloss sees the what that he's got something in his hand, asks him what it is. And he says, well, Mitchell says, well, here, take a look. He gives it to Bloss. Bloss reads it, stands up, understands that he's he's reading it out loud. There's an account of men on the other skirmish line to their right who can hear him reading these orders. And uh, he says, well, these are important. I need to take these back to Colonel Colgrove. He takes them to Colgrove who then takes them to um, to General Gordon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They work their way up the chain of command. And roughly, I'd say between 11th or 1.30 and 2.30 p.m., uh, they make their way to George McClellan. So that's what they, that's sort of the basic facts around the, you know, the discovery. The kind of detail we get, you don't get they were a half mile away. You, with Alex Rosino, you get they were 0.47 <laughs> miles away, just to make sure he measured it himself. John, before we go to the quiz, we have lots of questions here. We do want to thank our sponsor, Civil War Trails, and Drew Gruber, who, uh, who helped to make this podcast possible. Tom, I am so glad you asked. Uh, the podcast, as you said, is brought by Civil War Trails, the world's largest open-air museum, offering over 1,500 sites across six states, including two dozen stops along their Antietam campaign driving trail. You can request a free brochure to begin your planning at civilwartrails.org, civilwartrails.org. And when you see a sign, Tom, be sure to snap a signed selfie. Drew Gruber, the executive director of Civil War Trails will be extremely pleased if you Social do Social media, hashtag sign selfie. We, we do them all the time. And Drew always, Drew always Drew always likes them, so he appreciates that. So thank you. Thanks to Drew and Civil War Trails and everyone who loves the Civil War appreciates uh, what he does. Now, Alex, this is kind of a general question, but I think it also has to be asked, what, what effect did the, did the loss of the lost order, Special Orders 191, have on the Maryland campaign? Um, so that's actually a very big question. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, and this actually gets to the part of Calamity of Frederick that I finished first. So the last chapter uh, is dedicated to addressing this subject. And it came from an essay I finished back in 2021 that um, I had sent to Chris Howland at America's Civil War. And I never heard anything back from him again for until this year. Um, and so I said, well, the heck with it. I'm going to, since I'm writing this book and I'm putting these other pieces together, this would make a great capstone for that book. So I put that together as the, uh, you know, put that as the final chapter. And what it really does is... Um, it ruins Lee's plans, which of course McClellan doesn't know. And what's Lee? What, so what was Lee's plans? Okay, so if you follow the sort of standard traditional histories as they've been passed down over the years, Lee's plan was to go to Hagerstown and eventually to lead his army into Pennsylvania. So Gettysburg 1.0, right? Um, that's actually not what what was what Lee had planned by that point in time. Um, what Lee had planned by the time that his army left Frederick was that. Uh, he intended to, of course, capture Harper's Ferry, and that's why Special Orders Number 191 were developed, um, but uh, then to bring his army back together, as paragraph nine of those orders says, between uh, Hagerstown and Boonesboro, um, and that was where they were going. There were, he intended to confront McClellan's army west of South Mountain, far from the Washington, D.C. fortifications, so that when he defeated, you know, I can't use the word if here because Lee was Lee assumed that he was going to win, um, that uh, once he defeated McClellan, that uh, he would do it so far away from from the um, fortifications of Washington, D.C., that there would not be a repeat of Second Manassas. So that's one thing about these Civil War battles that I find kind of interesting is everyone's always got the last battle in the back of their mind. And so Lee wants to make sure that the conditions are different this time. And so he chooses uh, high ground at a place called or around a place called Beaver Creek, which is uh, a, a series of heights that are form a kind of um, almost like a shallow sea. And uh, they're about 2.5 miles north of Boonesboro, and there he intended to uh, to uh, meet McClellan and to fight him and probably win because I mean the land the land itself would have been it's it's very much like uh, a Fredericksburg kind of battlefield where you have a very flat area in front of it and then you have heights beyond so you could see how Lee would have used it as an artillery platform for his inf when his infantry was down below his artillery but his artillery could be firing over um, his men which I know that Civil War Civil War guys didn't like that very much but if you have enough height it's not going to be too big a problem um, so uh, that's what he intended to do. And so the loss of the orders ends up, um, McClellan accelerates his, he was already moving quickly, um, but he accelerates his attack and uh, he attacks the South Mountain Gaps. It forces Lee to defend the gaps, which causes thousands of casualties, a demoralizing defeat, a retreat back toward um, Virginia. Uh, Lee can't fight where he wants to fight. And he has to call his army together faster than he expects that he's going to have to do so. And those marches decimate the commands that uh, the, the, you know, the, the separate commands that have to move to um, back into Maryland to meet the army at Sharpsburg. So you have um, uh, like Longstreet, for example, when he has to march back from uh, Hagerstown to defend, uh, to uh, reinforce D.H. Hill at South Mountain, he loses half his command to straggling. Then you have uh, commanders uh, such as uh, General Lafayette McClaws, who he says that he ends up going into battle with uh, 2,600 men, um, just over 2,600 men in his division, and that 
by the he lost so many men that by the time that he uh by the next day by the 18th he had actually recovered all of his losses from the battle and he said he took hundreds of losses in the in the battle um and so he re but he recovered them because stragglers had finally made their way back to the command so it causes the big straggling problem ruins Lee's plan gives McClellan a better battlefield to fight on, I think. Uh, and I think that that can be claimed because um, if you look at the north side of the battlefield at Antietam, there's pretty much no there's no characteristic there, fits rain characteristic there that lends itself to a strong defensive posture. And uh, McClellan was able to uh, have Hooker bring uh, two corps against, uh, um, uh, at a time, against... Um, uh, Jackson's line at the Beaver Creek position. There is no room on either flank for that kind of maneuver. It really would have had to been a, a head-on, you know, uh, frontal attack kind of uh, kind of position. So I think that it ended up weakening the uh, Confederate Army, and it gave McClellan a better place to fight, which I don't think he understood at the time. Um, but you know, in hindsight, it's pretty clear. Alex, one of the things I'm curious about is these nitty gritty descriptions of of, of the ground there. You live in Boonesboro. Mm -hmm. Have you walked the ground? Have you tramped the the ground that you're that you describe and talk about in your book? Um, at Antietam, I have, but not at Beaver Creek because it's really all, it's it's all uh, private held, privately held land. So I've driven the roads in that area and stopped on the side of the road and you know taken a, taken some photographs and looked at the area, but I haven't had a chance to actually go and and walk them. Um, I guess if I went up to someone's house and asked them if I could if I yeah. could uh, you know access their yard or their fields, I could do it, but I haven't done that so far. And just to back up just a little bit, so. Lee's surprised by all this, by what McClellan has done, right? Very much so. Um, he's surprised uh, because, you know, he has been told by Jeb Stewart that uh, there are only two brigades following him, Stewart through Middletown Valley on the day, on the 13th. Um, and then all of a sudden after sun, sunset, uh, you know, by the time that uh, darkness falls, um, D.H. Hill finds out that, whoa, there's, you know, the valley is just blanketed with fire with campfires, meaning that there's a lot more than two brigades here. Um, and so he sends uh, a message up to Lee saying, you know, I need reinforcement. This is th there's a lot more than just two brigades here. And uh, we've got the whole whole enemy army in, in front of me. And then Lee gets a message from Jeb Stewart alleging that. Uh, a gentleman of Maryland had heard, had seen McClellan receive a, an important paper uh, in his uh, in his headquarters and thrown his hands up and said, "Now I know what to do." Sort of implying that, well, you know, McClellan now knew where the enemy are, where the rebel army was, and and what its dispositions were, and things like that. Um, but even though it surprises Lee, and this is one of the reasons why I think that he was he he uh, was so was really wedded to the uh, Beaver Creek position. Um, the next morning, Lee does not leave at daylight. This is another thing that is um, or does not send Longstreet's command back to uh, to South Mountain at daylight. This is another thing that has been. Um, you know, uh, taken at face value over the years uh, because Lee says after the war that he did and also Longstreet says that uh, we had departed at daylight. They actually don't leave until the fighting starts on South Mountain and that's that's three hours after daylight. So Lee loses the opportunity to get Longstreet's command to D.H. Hill early in the day, which may have actually stopped 
uh, his flanks from being turned. Um, but uh, he he delays. And so why would he have delayed? Well, he's waiting for Stonewall Jackson to get word to him that Harper's Ferry has fallen. And he doesn't think that uh, there's very there's a uh, there, he doesn't think there's really a um, uh, or he, he wants to fight at Beaver Creek. So I think that what he was planning on doing was telling G.H. Hill to pull back from the South Mountain position um, so that uh, they could then pin McClellan in that spot till Jackson could come up. And if you look at the map, you can, he can come up through Williamsport and then down Lappins road and hit the federal, what would have been the federal left flank. It's pretty clear, you know, from the road, from the maps and the, from the road, uh, sort of the road network in the area. As an aside, uh, speaking of tramping the battlefield, this is a little off our topic, but I think you, Alex will enjoy it. And John will as well. Yeah. My wife, Colleen wants someone to lead us on AP Hills walk from Harper's Ferry to Antietam, including, she insists, crossing the Potomac, fording the Potomac. So okay. Kevin Pollack, guy, if you're listening, Colleen is going to ask you to do that for us. So, uh, <laughs> and Tom, I want to join you because I've been wanting to do this for years, by the way. It, it so now it looks like we're going to do it. It may be an Antietam Beyond podcast excursion. Who knows? <laughs> Absolutely. But but back to our topic, and, and Alex, this is fascinating, and there's so many topics we're going to jump over, over the place, but John and I, as you know, are former newspaper men, mm -hmm. and the thing that fascinated me most about reading the, the first chapter of, uh, of The Tale Untwisted was how the story of McClellan was made, how it was reported. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly some, uh, some army people, but also some writers as well, certainly the way it was presented in the media. And those and the historians picked them up correct, you know, right away, and it became the story for a hundred years. Could you get into just a little bit of that? How that story got out that way? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I really, the the story really starts with McClellan declaring that he was running for president for the Democratic Party, which really turned out to be a big mistake. Uh, I think if you look at it, and I think that he probably looked at it as a big mistake after it happened too. Um, so he had faced. Criticism, of course, for the Peninsula campaign not being successful, and um, there were a lot of people in politics and in the press that had accused him of failing to relieve Harper's Ferry as well, etc. But these early issues had died down by 1864. Um, but once he declares his candidacy, and then he publishes a 400-page report sort of justifying his time as the commander of the Army of the Potomac in February of that year, he entered what I call the blood sport of presidential politics, and... At that point, all hell broke loose and partisan newspapers and the radical Republicans in Congress, they turned attack dogs, such as a man named William Swinton, um, loose on Little Mac. Um, and remember, Swinton is a reporter who actually managed to even annoy uh, Ambrose Burnside to the extent that Ambrose that Burnside threatened to have him shot as a libeler of the press, which I mean, Burnside is considered to be a very kind of gentle man, you know, I mean, very sensitive guy and for him to threaten to shoot someone, a civilian, no less, um, must means that he really must have gotten under his uh, under his um, a bit of burr under his saddle. Uh, he annoys George Meade. Um, he annoys uh, General Grant. So it's not just McClellan, but he happens to be used as the attack dog against McClellan, and he he publishes a series of essays from or articles in the New York Times from February of 1864 through February through April of 1864 um, that sort of dissect his military record, but also his personality. And he's he's wide open and plain about that too. He says at one point that he's not going. He's not. Um, uh, he, he he's he's interested in revealing the kind of personality that 
wants to be president of the United States. Would you trust this man? And then he goes into his dilatoriness, his timidity, his caution, how the war would be lost. I mean, it's just one thing after another. And it's sort of a character assassination on the grand scale that we're really dealing with still to this very day. And all of the tropes that we really regularly hear about McClellan, um, all of those characteristics that have become cemented in the public mind, they started, they were cemented in 1864 and they still are operative today. Um, I encounter them constantly online, um, especially on, you know, Facebook, the Facebook historians, when they get going, um, it's, you know, little Mac this, little Mac that. Um, but anyway, I hope that our work is, you know, trying to is uh, going to correct that story. Alex, I'd like to take an adventure into Civil War nerddom. Oh, yeah, sure. Nerd away. There's two things <laughs> I want to know. Let's say I want to visit the site. This is a two-parter. I want okay. to I visit where the lost orders were found, part one. Mm -hmm. Part two, where are the lost orders today? And were there copies made of the lost orders that you and I could go see? Uh, yes. So where the lost orders are found is, has never been really fully revealed, I guess, until this work. Um, and I, my co-author Gene Thorpe would disagree with me. Uh, we have, we went back and forth with this and I actually just posted um, a piece on my website, uh, my blog called Campaign Minutes. It's the inaugural post and it's on the evidence where the encampments were for the 12th Corps on the 13th. My understanding is that the orders were found, or I believe the orders were found just past that intersection I mentioned of Reich's Ford Road. I'll use the contemporary name because people won't know where Iamsville Road is. They won't be able to find it on a map. Um, so the intersection of Reich's Ford Road, South Franklin Street, and East South Street in Frederick. Right there, there's Grove Park, which is a small park. It's about, a, I guess, about a city block. And there's a small row of pine trees around, curiously enough, a little stone monument that's sort of dedicated to the park, which I find interesting because I think that's where the orders were found. So there's this little monument there already. So there's this little park and it's in the city now, of course, right? You know, there are buildings on your houses on your left and, and on your right, there's a big storage unit place on the right here. It's all, it's all city and industrial park and things, but the park itself is still there. So you can, you can go there and you can visit it. As for the copies of the orders, McClellan's copy of the orders, uh, or the one that ended up making its way to him, that's held at the Library of Congress, and you can go and take a look at the real copy itself if you want, or there's a digital copy that's available online. You can pull those down. Uh, there's also other copies of the law of the orders, which are kind of interesting. So there's a copy that Stonewall Jackson made for D.H. Hill. And that's available at the University of North Carolina's uh, library in the Wilson collection there. And that's also available online. So you can see that. Um, but I, I found in the library of Virginia, I found a copy of a draft of the orders that ended up becoming special orders number 191. And that was special orders number 190. And those are in Lee's papers at the library of Virginia. And uh, it is seven paragraphs, paragraphs three through through 10. And uh, it's written by Charles Marshall, uh, dictated to, to, through Lee to Charles Marshall. 
And uh, you can, I think, pull those, you can have those pulled from the, the account, the uh, collection, and you can take a look at those too. Uh, then there's a two paragraph copy of special orders number 191, which is addressed to Adjutant General Samuel Cooper uh, in Richmond. And that is at the National Archives downtown in Washington, DC. And they'll pull that for you as well. Um, and that two paragraph is only the first two paragraphs. So one and two. So Lee basically wrote out the orders or had the orders written out in two pieces, a two paragraph uh, order named 191, a three pair or a seven paragraph special orders 190 which was a draft and then later they were combined into a 10 pair the full 10 paragraph document that appears in the uh in the official records and you can see that original too that's also at the library of virginia and a quick follow-up sure have you held any of these versions and if you have did you have any special feeling or goosebumps or I have the not. hair raise on your neck or anything like no that. but finding them when i when i first got that uh, get that email from uh, the archivist at the library of virginia when i asked for the right you know for the for that copy of special orders 190 and i saw it i was like first i first i was really excited i mean of course you know because you're seeing document for the first time and things and i couldn't believe it and i looked at it and i went well, this is weird. Why is this R? Why is this number one ninety? And it's in Charles Marshall's handwriting. So, what's the what is the meaning of all this? So, I went from being excited to being perplexed pretty much right away. And it took me a while to figure out after examining the document and looking at other documents that were official documents that it must have been a draft because it's not countersigned. Um, it's not addressed to anyone. Uh, so, it must have been. And it also is the content of what ended up being the lost copy of the order. So um, it was it was interesting, definitely, to get, to, to get it, that's for sure. But I haven't gone, I haven't actually seen it <laughs> or felt it in my hands. <laughs> Talked uh, mostly about uh, the McClellan tinted book, The Tail Untwisted. I know how that, how you got that title. Uh, what's the background of the title for Calamity at Frederick, which is more, more the Lee perspective? Right. So it actually comes from a statement that Lee made to wrote to um, D.H. Hill in a letter in February of 1868. And uh, when he said uh, that uh, when I when I learned that the orders had been lost, um, paraphrasing, basically, I considered it a great calamity and my opinion has not changed since. So that's where I that's where I get it from, from Lee himself. Interesting. Tom, uh, Alex, were there any surprises in your research anything that you went into this and you, you thought man i didn't i didn't know that this, that that's nuts sure um so there were a lot of them actually one of them was what i just brought up this the fact that there were actually separate copies of the orders that were in two pieces that lee issued them in two pieces the first two paragraphs i don't think anyone saw them Honestly, I think that they were written out and that they were sent to Adjutant General uh, uh, Samuel Cooper in Richmond. And I haven't I've never come across anybody who mentioned seeing them, um, which I find interesting because the first paragraph deals with uh, um, uh, shopkeepers not accepting Confederate money and being overrun by Confederate troops. And that's so that the order was to keep the men out of Frederick. I think that Lee ended up doing that because he wanted that. So he wanted to communicate that things weren't going as well in Maryland as he expected, as the Confederate government expected them to be going. And so he was sort of a way of saying, hey, you know, we've got a little bit of a, an issue here. 
So that was one big surprise. Another was simply the sheer volume of sources that are out there that offer a far more detailed picture of McClellan's operation in Maryland. You know, like I said before, I approached this topic thinking that most of the history had been written and established, but the material Gene showed me, I couldn't believe that there was, uh, that's why I said to him, why haven't, why haven't, A, why haven't I read this? Which is a question that people ask me constantly. Why haven't heard, why I haven't heard of this, haven't I heard of this before? And, uh, you know, why hasn't been, how come no one's used this before? So he helped me see the perspective of the, or can take a really different perspective on the lost orders. And so he also helped us pr to provide enough context to prove that the trophies telegram, which is McClellan's telegram that he sent to, to uh, Washington on the 13th, that um, will said says, I, I will send you trophies to Lincoln. It's the one that um, there's one copy uh, that has uh, noted 12M. That's the whole noon controversy, et cetera. But we we have enough context now that we don't even need to know the time on the document. You can see, based on the sources, uh, exactly what McClellan was writing and when he knew it. And you can tell that it was written later in the day. There's no, no, no you don't even have to rely on the timestamp anymore. And so, you know, those things were really, really surprising. The other thing I would say that 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 surprised me during all this research is I came across the name of a man called Richard Major, Major Richard Cornelius Taylor. Have you ever heard of him? I've as either of no. you ever heard of him before. No, okay, I hadn't no. heard of him either. <laughs> so he's Major Walter Taylor's older brother, and it turns out that he was on the staff of Richard Anderson and uh, his division, and they marched north from Richmond to meet the army at second, you know, after second Manassas. And at that point in time, Lee uh, seems to have uh, recruited Taylor, the older Taylor, to be on his staff. So they go into Maryland, and uh, both Walter Taylor and Richard, or as they was known as Dick Taylor, both Richard and or Dick and uh, Walter Taylor are um, on the general staff at the time. And so uh, Walter Taylor, of course, gets assigned on the 9th of uh, September to go back to uh, Virginia to make sure that Jefferson Davis doesn't come into Maryland because he's on his way north. Lee gets word he's on his way north from Richmond. Well, uh, that leaves uh, in the adjutant's tent, Major Richard C. Taylor, who actually writes out the copies that are distributed, the order, the copies of the orders that are distributed. So that was a big surprise because I had never, never heard of the guy, didn't know he was involved or anything. And then on the 10th, he goes back to Virginia and ends up meeting his brother in Warrington and they go to Winchester together. And so, I mean, there, it's strange to see these people all of a sudden pop into the story who you just really didn't know that they, they even played a role. Alex, it has been Fascinating. I knew I knew it would be having heard you speak twice at the Institute. Uh, we want to be respectful of your time, but we're going to ask you, because you've written three other books and many other work, uh, if you would come back again, we'd really appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners would too some, sometime here. It's just been it's just been great. We appreciate you sharing your knowledge of what you found. Thanks, Tom. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, I would be happy to. Um, the next book is um, uh, The Guns of September, which is my McClellan novel, and that should be out in early 2024 at some point. I'd say probably, you know, within the first quarter. And that's been in process for a long time. Uh, and it's, that was a really interesting book to write because having to get into the head of George McClellan not a pleasant place to be necessarily, you know, but uh, having to get into his head. Um, but then also um, tell the story from the northern side of the uh, of the of um, of the history, 
it's a lot more complicated than the Southern side because there's a lot of ferment in the Northern society at that time, right? So you have the suffragette movement, the women's rights movement that's been developing even before the civil war. And um, so I kind of felt like I had to weave some of that stuff into, into the story. It's not quite as straight ahead. It's not just, you know, these guys were here and they went there and they did this. It's um, more trying to understand what the, trying to capture the personality of the character of the country at the time. Alex beyond, our gratitude if we ever get a antietam and beyond podcast t-shirt we'll, we'll send that your way oh lovely thank you and considering <laughs> that you live in boonsboro tom and i are willing to take you out to the semi-official restaurant of the podcast the press room in shepherdstown west virginia nice. we'd, we'd be honored to take you out absolutely thank you here i thought you were going to take me to the redbird they have great pie there <laughs> maybe there too <laughs> Tom, I think we've arrived at the time for the banjos. I think we have, John. Take it away, banjos. Mm -hmm.